Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He played for Trinity Western, where he's a three-time national champion. He's played a couple years in Germany and currently in Portugal, and he's a member of our Senior A team that qualified for the next Olympics. Please welcome to the show, Pierce Ashinko. Pierce, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me on here, Josh. So I think the last time we left you off, uh, you were still at Trinity. Uh, this was quite a while ago. I think we were in like episode 90-something. If people want to go back and listen to it, it's a good one. But uh, going from Trinity to pro, and I, and I think you were a B-team guy going from the A-team guy. So a lot to catch up on. But uh, I am curious because volleyball is such a unique thing. Uh, what point did you start getting an agent? And when did you start looking pro? Because uh, it's not like North American sports where you get drafted and a club owns you. You kind of have to compare this country to that country and this team and, and just finding a fit, right? So when you got that first deal in Germany, what went into that? So when I was uh, graduating from Trinity, it was the 2020 COVID year. And anyone who follows uh, men's volleyball in Canada has probably noticed a lot of Trinity Western players will go to Lundberg, Germany and play with uh, Stefan Hubner, the coach there. Uh, there's a little bit of a... I mean, it was just uh, word of mouth, but a little bit of a pipeline between Trinity and uh, and Lundberg. And a lot of uh, Trinity players kind of kickstarted their career from Lundberg. So that was originally my plan. Um, and uh, there was talks of that early in my fifth year, like even in January of my fifth year. Um, that was kind of going to be my progression into the professional scene. <laughs> with COVID hitting, uh, Lundberg actually didn't know whether or not that they were going to have a program or going to have any sort of team the following year just based on funding and uh, some some of their main sponsors who were mostly local businesses being shot out and not being able to provide any money. So I uh, I got an agent quite late. I got an agent probably in April talking to a couple of volleyball mentors just within the Volleyball Canada uh, community. And uh, yeah, so kind of compared and contrast with a few, met with a few through April, once the pandemic was kind of in full swing. And um, to be honest, wasn't very hopeful because going into that uh, COVID year, things were really slow. Market wasn't really open for anyone. And um, it was just very unpredictable with whether there is even going to be seasons for the following, following year. So had a little bit of a stressful uh, point to start off my professional career, not actually knowing if I was going to get the contract. I ended up signing to another team, also in Germany, not far from Lundberg. For my first year, uh, I went to Gießen, Helios, Helios Gießen Grizzlies is the first, is the official name. Uh, Jacob Kern actually joined me right after, which uh, turned into a nice surprise. Um, for those of you who don't know Jacob Kern, he's, um, I think he's been on the show as well. Yep. But, uh, yeah. But, um he was a just a senior with me at Trinity and a long-term friend. So I actually got to play my first year, although during a pandemic with uh, one of my best buddies on the team. So we both signed there pretty late. I think I was in May and he was a couple weeks after me, which is pretty late signings for men's volleyball. And uh, yeah, we were, we were up to Germany in August. So um, I was a little bit late to the game, had a little bit of a crazy, hectic start, very unpredictable, but that was kind of how it all shook out for me just based on the COVID year. And with that kind of settling, what went into you um, finally getting a spot on Ludenberg? Cause I believe you played there the next two seasons, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, so Stefan mentioning that name again, the Ludenberg coach likes to build his uh, team pretty early and uh, he's very notorious within 
a greater volleyball community, but especially within the German Bundesliga for being a very, very good middle coach. Uh, he was an elite middle himself. He was actually on the all-decade team. I don't know if they still do this, but he was on the all-decade team from 2000 to 2010 for just um, like the FIVB, like international volleyball. So he was named one of the best uh, middles for those 10 years of playing. So I really wanted to be coached by him. Obviously, I had heard a lot of good things from former Trinity teammates who had been there. And um, the jump was pretty easy because the cities weren't too far from each other. I had a pretty good feel of what life in Germany was already like. And um, yeah, I just wanted a change up for my first year. So decided to move cities, although somewhat similar. Um, just give me a new experience, new uh, perspective on professional volleyball. The COVID year was hard because there wasn't a lot to do outside of outside of uh, even just limited training space and time on court. Uh, the pandemic really took a lot from, I mean, everyone, but in that situation, took a lot from uh, the teams and the league as well. So I was actually maybe going to quit, but ended up finding a, yeah, ended up finding another, uh, yeah, just another solution, probably give another kick at the can and uh, just change up my environment a little bit and see how it went so um and it went really well i really enjoyed my two years there enjoyed stefan the team that was very north american based so it kind of felt like i was back in university um i think in my last year there for example i we had three canadians and four americans so uh between half the team being from more than half the team being from north america just it was a really young fun group uh which is quite rare in professional volleyball so really enjoyed my time there and yeah uh decided for another change up this year so now i'm in portugal but don't uh, regret any of my time in the bird, so yeah and if you don't mind sharing if it's not too personal um i, I mean professional volleyball is awesome and you're definitely playing at the, at the highest level but th- there's a ton of free time you're living in another country you're away from family and friends like how did you manage that? Was it a time zone thing? Like, were you just trying to find a way to connect? Like, uh, we've had other guys on the show talk about how they just like to play video games to get their mind off it. Like, how do you fill the day? Because uh, it is similar to university where you're coming from a good university program, but now you don't have class. Like, how are you managing all this free time and the language barrier and all the things that go into being a pro athlete overseas? For sure. Um, it can be a little bit, there's a little bit of culture shock for sure. Uh, moving into a different country and away from Canadian volleyball spaces. For me, I do enjoy learning. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't love every class in school, but I did. I did enjoy my degree. So, a lot of my spare time um, went into learning things that I had interests in, and usually had something to do with my sport. So, for example, uh, always interested and intrigued in, in new ways to um, making myself more healthy, uh, help myself perform to the best of my ability. Um, I love watching video. I can be a little bit of a volleyball nerd. I go through, I go through streaks where I'm all over volleyball metrics and I don't know, chatting with coaches and other players and things like that about what some, some new things that are arising in the game in different positions. So to be honest, it just became more professional. Like in school, sometimes I didn't have time for my body. I didn't have time to make sure other areas of my life were healthy <laughs> Um, managing stress, actually sleeping enough, putting a little bit more focus into what I was eating. Because I, looking back, I don't know how university athletes, well, how I did it and then how they do it now. Like it still shocks me that you can manage for sometimes even five classes and be practicing twice a day. 
So, um, yeah, just more time went into volleyball and more time went into things that I'm interested in. So I get to spend time researching yeah, things that are going to make me a better player, a better person, and just uh, able to perform the game at a higher level. And uh, I do want to pull on one of your earlier points, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the pro scene. You're, you're not exaggerating. It's been a great home to a bunch of Trinity guys where Jesse Elster's there now. Uh, Snitcher was just there, but Strymer played there. Del Bianco, Slater, uh, Blake Shearhorn. And I think uh, TK probably deserves the most credit because he's been there the longest, uh, Tyler Kozlowski. But uh, what's, what is the fit? Uh, obviously, Coach has, has a love for the Canadian style and the Trinity style, but is it just so, so many guys have gone through there and had a good experience that they trust uh, signing these Canadians? Like, is it a similar system that maybe you felt comfortable right away? Or if you had to guess, why is there always, well, not always, but most often a Trinity guy, but always a Canadian on this club? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how Stefan does his recruiting tactics because, like I said, there's a lot of Americans there too, um, as well as... He, he has a he has a good handpick of Germans as well. But, but I guess for whatever reason, volleyball wise, um this yeah, the systems were quite similar. I didn't have to learn a lot of new things going from Trinity to Lundberg. Uh, very similar offensive systems especially. And then yeah, I mean volleyball has a lot of quality characters, but uh, I guess Stefan just really values. It wasn't just Trinity guys. Like there's there's a lot of even Canadians that have gone through. Like Xander Kajasinski is there right now. Max Elger. Um, I guess he just val- values. Excuse me, Stefan. I guess just values uh, some camaraderie and uh, some of the team first approaches that Canadians usually bring to the court. Um, so I think that could have a big big impact on it too and why he seems to keep coming back to recruiting Canadians and how important is that for you and your agent to find the right system because I I was shocked again just doing this show and talking to cool people like Dustin Snyder talked about he would get signed to a club and they wouldn't want to run the type of offense that he was and I was like how did they not look at your setting style before they signed a guy like Dustin for for a guy like you in the middle who wants to attack gaps and be really fast like you mentioned Stefan wants to run that system but do you think there's middles who ever get signed and they're just like, no, you're just going to run fifties and commit block and you're not going to do like read stuff. Like uh, how much does like the pro scene do their research and make sure you're a fit for their system versus you kind of have to change your style every once in a while. That's a good question. Um, I would say as a, at a base level, both uh, most professional teams are not a hundred percent looking at um systems or specific style that a player is running uh, maybe the top teams are i'm not like i think some of the best teams around for sure i think have to think about all the moving pieces and how those would fit into making a good team um but usually that conversation is a little bit more in the background opposed to some of the other things that go into making of a contract in the foreground um i think you can learn something from every coach like for sure, maybe some coaches are quote unquote better or worse than than others, but they all have some piece of knowledge that I think you can take and absorb and apply to your own game in your own way. Uh, the professional scene is also interesting in the sense that, unlike university, where you can see big improvements in players pretty quick because they're young, um, and especially like physically, um, you're going to see a lot of improvements from being 17 to 22 when you graduate. Professional players kind of have a style and then 
Um, that style doesn't necessarily change, like it doesn't change a whole bunch. You're, you're not really excelling in leaps and bounds. It's, it's more little tools that you can add to your game. And then that's kind of where I think you can learn something from every coach and every team is going to give you an opportunity to work on a different aspect of your game. In terms of the teams looking into you, I would trust that they do their research. Uh, and then usually once the signing's almost done or once you're kind of getting to the point where you're going to be arriving, you start talking a little bit more about system and how we want this player to fit in or this, uh, yeah, this style to work with the team dynamics. And when you mentioned Stefan is a, he's a former just top tier middle, what, what do you notice in a coach who understands the middle position? Because I think all coaches are pretty demanding that the, the middle blocker really runs the defense and we're trying to eliminate seams and gaps and take away like the primary shot and all that good stuff. But was he maybe a little bit more understanding if you were late or maybe a little bit more demanding on like you were late on like the, the primary hitter in a pressure situation, like just because he understands the demands of middle? Like what were some things that stood out being like, wow, this guy really understands my position? He was very, so building off what I had just responded to your last question um, regarding how I think you can take something from every coach or every team and apply it to your own game. Stefan was very analytical to the point where I think a lot of teams will have a base system and then they'll adjust it slightly depending on the team they're playing. Like if, a, if an outside hitter is super, super external and is pretty much only attacking like cross court, then sure, you probably swing your sixth defender to the corner. Uh, you would make sure your front row left side is peeling off so that you have like some more defenders in that those hot spots, let's say. But for the most part, a lot of teams have a base system. They kind of roll with it and then it's up to the players to make some decisions. Uh, Stefan was very, he would build this, his game plans completely based on the other team centered. So it was a lot of studying, a lot of numbers and a lot of, to the point where if he's in this square meter of the court, then this is kind of his, his outset. So, uh, he taught me how to kind of build a database of setters and what different setters are going to look like in different situations and where they're going to set because there is trends like if i was to look at the center there now max elgert and one of the best setters in the world like bruno bruno's quality might be a little bit better and experience might be is obviously a lot higher but at the end of the day like some of the trends and some of the setter moves are actually quite similar at the at like a professional level so stefan would really train me to 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 observe like these movements and then would build a game plan based off those movements. Hopefully I'm not getting too deep here, but um, that was like the main thing that I brought away from, um, <laughs> from Lundberg. And it's funny because he might be screaming mad at me because we said when the setter's running at the net off that he's going to be setting back. If I missed, maybe I missed that cue and I wasn't, and I started like shading with the middle, following the setter when I should have been staying, expecting him to do the back set. Um, someone watching would be like, why is the coach like yelling at the middle right now? But both Stephon and I knew that that was a cue that I messed up on, that we had studied and that I was expected to perform. So being hard, being, being more demanding versus, um, versus being more understanding. I would say Stefan was probably more demanding, but was demanding on very particular things because our game plan was so analytically based. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, this is awesome because every time we have a setter on, it's so easy to nerd out and talk about the cat and mouse game. But I feel like middles, we don't get to hear that side as much because you kind of have to stay neutral and read. So this is fascinating. I am curious. It is a physical sport and you are a physical guy. So how do you not get caught up in the numbers and say, okay, the pass was shaded to four. He likes to make the long set when the right side's in the front row and like almost start cheating or leaning versus like staying neutral, knowing that like Max, for example, can do both sets and he might be trying to look and see where you are. Right. So you can't just go on what the tendency is. You have to make that live physical read, right? For sure. So Tendencies seem to come in when you're in like the red zone of a game. So when it was 2020 or when the game is tight. So maybe in a situation like that, where you're in that crunch time past 20 and the game is tight, like that's when those tendencies can really come into play. And man, it's, it's gotten to a point in my career, like where most of the teams that I'm playing now, whether it be with the national team or in Champions League with Benfica, in, in a good, if the other team's in a good situation and the ball is delivered well, anyone can put the ball away, you know? And it becomes like a very minuscule, um, finding a minuscule edge of your opponent. So if I know that, that this trend exists, then I'm going to stick with it because for sure he could set away from what that trend is. But there's probably a higher chance that he's going to follow his trend when there's a pressure situation. The game is tight, and uh, and like that's what the numbers are there for. Like that's what we're doing all this game film for. So yeah, if he if he ends up setting forward and I'm late to the block, like I'll do what I can. But like that's kind of the commitment uh, as a middle. Like that's the that's what I've committed to. I've committed to making sure that that shot doesn't score that back set like when he's running forward at the net for sure the other ones can be uh for sure uh other shots can score in um in a particular situation but the shot that i'm trying to stop and the shot that's most likely to happen is like what i'm committed to stopping so yeah i'll go with that and if something else happens then you have to adjust and you do your best but at the end of the day you're you're playing with really small numbers and just trying to gain really small edges over your opponent and is this something you've always been comfortable with? Because it reminds me of a presentation uh, Benjo did, your, your Trinity coach, where he talked about at a coaching conference once. Um, if anything weird happens or they do like the common shot, like their big tendency, those are the balls we have to get. But if somebody's in system and they hit an extreme angle, it's kind of like, well, our base defense isn't going to stop that. But if if they're off balance or they tip or maybe they hit the, the primary shot under pressure like you're talking about, those are the balls we absolutely have to get. So as a middle... Are you able to track that? That you're kind of like, I just got scored on, but they did something awesome versus I just got scored on and they beat our base system. Like how, how are you able to evaluate and still be like kind to yourself, but demanding at the same time? Like it's such a tricky thing being a middle because you can work your tail off and not get the results. So how do you know what's actually working and what's like something maybe you messed up on? Yeah, I think how you actually started that question, question is great if we can stop like what we know that they're good at what the opponent, what we know the opponent is good at and what they're going to do in those pressure situations, if we can slow them down and stop that, like that's usually enough to give us that edge to take a set. Cause usually we're only talking about a couple points here and there, right? Two, three points is, is a big deal at the highest level. So if we can create a plan and, and know that 
there is something common that they're going to do in this situation and take that away from them and force them to find other solutions, it puts us in a way better situation to get those couple more stops and earn a couple more points over them. So. And are you aware, like, I love how you called it the red zone there earlier, where let's just use a very sim- a basic answer here, and maybe you could add more depth to it, but uh, maybe a middle's primary is when he's behind the setter, he likes to swing around and hit the ball to one. If he's early in the set at like 4-4, four, four, cutting it back to like the 5-6 seam, you're going to give him that shot. But at 20-all, you're going to know that he's going to try to go crossbody to one. Like, are you kind of playing the, the percentages later in the set? And if he scores a couple that are not his primary or off the shot chart, you're kind of like, okay, that's that's abnormal. And I'm going to give him that because I know in crunch time, he'll go back to what he's most comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. I think... Like I said, I think especially at this highest level, on top of everyone being able to score in a good situation, for sure, and setters being able to set both sets, regardless if there's a tendency or not in a specific spot. Similarly, hitters are going to also take what you give them if they're, you know, if they can see it. But like I said, I think in that crunch time, for sure, you have to take away their shots. And then also early on in a game when everyone's settling in, that's also a really common time for, we'll say, the common shot for the hitter to be made. So with your example, if the middle swinging around and usually he hits it cross body to one, yeah, say in row three or row six. And if that, if I get that rotation early, for sure I'm going to be taking him to one. If I have, if I've made the decision to commit and I'm going to be on that middle in a good situation. Yeah, I'll be I'll be dragging my right hand and making sure that that one shot is not there because a lot of players are trying to settle in earlier in the game too. Um, it's kind of the middle section where it gets a little gray. Uh, I think players might go up against their tendency, and I mean, if you see it and you can take it away, regardless, like yeah, that's great. But like I said, I think tendencies exist for a reason, and a lot of this game is just so remotely built into our heads at this point. Like how many balls have I hit and how many, how many times have I made the same block move at this point in my career? It's, it's, it's a lot. So um, yeah, players tend not to think as much when it gets intense or when there, there's a lot of pressure and energy going on, like at the pressure at the end of the game and energy at the beginning of the game. So take the tendency and that's probably your best odds made stop. Awesome, man. Awesome. Hopefully we can uh, take a deep dive here, but just to, cover uh, more pro stuff and then we'll get into your national team experience so switching to a club like Benfica like you're in Champions League you're playing for cups you're playing for standings it seems like you guys want to win everything historically with that club are they pretty demanding on a foreigner like when you chose to sign there is it because you wanted to play for league championships and you wanted to play in Champions League like what drew you to the Portuguese league but also a club like Benfica yeah so um, for those that don't know a lot about the men's volleyball world, the Portuguese league isn't notorious for being like the best league in international volleyball, especially in European volleyball. But every league that is maybe a little bit weaker has a couple teams that are, like you said, in Champions League or competing in those international cups and tournaments. And I've never played Champions League before, so the opportunity to play Champions League with Benfica was definitely a draw. Um, yeah, we, we've had a pretty, we got a really tough pool, unfortunately. But uh, just being able to play in those matches against some of the best players around the world has been awesome. It's been really, really fun. There's a different type of pressure playing for Benfica as well, which technically I haven't felt yet because it's not the end of the season. But I think they're going on 
four championships in a row, and this would be their fifth if we won this year. So at this point, <laughs> at this point for the players that are still here and the coaching staff and the club, it's either a win or bust. Like there's not really a middle ground for it being a successful season. If you don't win the championship, they would say that that is not a successful season. So uh, we'll see once it gets into the crunch time of season um, towards the end of playoffs here. But uh, feeling that pressure, I think, would be really fun. Um, and then having the opportunity to play in Champions League was also a big draw. I This is a, a third thing, but I just wanted to change up from Germany. Um, I felt it was just time for me to move on. I'm a human, too. I'm not just... Uh, I mean, I'm not just a volleyball player. I, I did want to see like a new city experience, a new culture, and... Uh, be in the sun a little bit more in Northern Germany is also a bit of a draw. So yeah, those are some of the things that, that uh, brought me to Benfica. Awesome. Awesome. And with you being in Champions League and obviously being on our senior A team, when you go down these volumetric wormholes and you're watching some of the best players, like one of your tales from overseas was one of my favorite uh, stories from last year is you're, you're playing against Bruno and Agapath and the match starts where Agapath is kind of being too cool for school. And then they actually have to play their guys and you guys end up taking down Modena. But because you're such a fan when you're across the net from these guys how do you get to the position where you're like you know what i i play for team canada i'm one of the best middles in the world like i belong at this level versus like going down the youtube rabbit hole where you're like a fan too and you're like oh bruno's so good where now you want to compete with them right is it easy for you to flip that switch i think i think over time the uh the (laughs) switch gets flipped let's say um i think after this last summer and after a little bit more experience, like playing in those games and playing against those players, you start to realize that they're that they're human as well. And uh, like I kind of made a reference to in the beginning of the episode, the difference between setters isn't like necessarily that much greater percentage. It's just small. It's just performing when it really matters. And then maybe maybe the set is a little bit more. Its location is a little bit better. Like one time out of ten, there's not a massive difference. So simply realizing that you're here for a reason, you're playing in these games for a reason, and that you, you're you here because you can compete with those players, the sooner you realize that, I think the better you're going to be. Um, Eric Lepke and I were actually chatting about this uh, like a year back when I was still kind of fresh on the national team last year. And he had said that Gord Perrin kind of told him that, like, because Eric was starting in some... Uh, I think it was a uh, an exhibition game against Russia, and he was blocking. Um, he was blocking not Mazursky, but um, Mihailov. That was it. It's Maxim Mihailov, and he's like, "Oh man, I've, I've been watching this guy since I was like very young, and now I'm playing against him." And he said that Gord told him that like the sooner you realize that you're here for a reason, the sooner that you realize that you can compete with these guys. Otherwise you wouldn't be on this court, then the better you're going to be. And um, yeah, I think just the mindset to bring into it now. So yeah, they're good and they're good for a reason, but you're good too. So, and you're here for a reason. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So to jump over to your national team experience, man, what a summer. Take me through the end of pro to your national team. Cause it seems like everybody's was a little bit different, including coach where you guys didn't get much time together. So how much of an off season at all did you get, or did you meet the squad at VNL? Like, did you get any time in Gatineau? Yeah, I got a little bit. Um, I think I went home April 25th ish. 
And then I was out there like May 8th. So I got about two weeks, which was really nice. Uh, but my season ended a little bit earlier than some other seasons um, around the volleyball world. So, uh, but <laughs> Thomas didn't show up until, oh man, we only had like a week together within a week and two days or something like that before we had to be moving into the hotel in Ottawa and starting our PNL. So, and for sure we had ideas of what he was going to be like and what he wanted to implement. Like there were some basics. Um, but yeah, overall, definitely not a lot of time with, with this new coach. Um, jumped right into it, and the summer was super, super long. So uh, we were really learning on the fly and uh, trying to keep everyone healthy. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of information overload, but I mean, it ended off pretty well in our favor. So. When you're in a process like VNL, are you um, ever watching the standings? Are you taking like each week on its own thing and looking ahead to the matchup? Like was there ever any concern or worry on your end that like the, the way things were going off the start that uh, you were kind of in one? Yeah. So I think I've, I mean, I've only played in this VNL tournament twice now, but both years it's always come down like the last game for like, whether we're going to challenge a cup or whether we're, I think we were like one game away from making finals. Like it's always really tight at the end. So even though in first week in Ottawa, maybe you don't feel pressure, that you're going to look back at some of those games. Ah, dang, like, we really, you know, need this game. We would have really needed this win, or even an extra step off this team would have been incredible. Um, it's really easy to get lost in that. But I'm also a firm believer that any piece of information like that outside of what I need to be doing for the next game and to make it even smaller, like, the next set, next point, the next action, it's not really that helpful. Um, you have to like stay present in those games. Otherwise, otherwise the tournament can become very overwhelming very fast. So for sure your mind will slip there to answer your question, but it's not, it's not beneficial. And I think as our team is getting a little bit more experience, we're realizing that more and more. And when that gets tested, the, the China match, for example, where you guys have a short turnaround and, uh, again, I'm not sure if if the players knew this, but all the fans back home were like, "Oh, if we lose this, I think we get relegated." Like, was that something that was brought up in the team room or over breakfast, or you guys were just dialed about like, "This is who we're playing, and we want to win every game." We knew the situation for sure, um, but again, it shouldn't change how we act in that game or the game to start the tournament off against Cuba when we were in Ottawa. So, I mean, thankfully, guys showed up and had some really good performances uh, in that final match against China and we were able to get the job done. But um, yeah, like I said, any piece of information that's taking you off like what your next action is, I don't think it's helpful. Like pure presence is really, really beneficial at this level. So, um, And again, we had Mar on the show recently. You wouldn't have had a chance to listen to that, but uh, I was fascinated. So VNL ends uh, and then Thomas gets to run like a true camp and you, and you guys are preparing for the Olympic qualifier. What was that experience like? Because, uh, again, it's not my story to tell, uh, but he shared it on the show. It was pretty gnarly physically, right? Like pretty demanding uh, conditioning-wise at the start, right? Yeah, so we <laughs> we got about we got about a week, maybe a week and a couple days off. A uh, week and a weekend off of um, off from BNL. And uh, he actually brought us back early. We weren't supposed to uh, originally, in the original plan, things change a lot with the national team. And I think we're pretty used to not being able to make plans. But um, 
originally we were supposed to get another, maybe even another full week off, and he decided to bring us back a little bit earlier. Um, and we literally, what we were doing, in the words of Mike Cook, who is our head strength trainer at, uh, at Team Canada, we're literally doing something out of a textbook. So we started a training cycle where um, we had a ton of cardio and really, really heavy physical load and some very heavy strength training. And then over the course of about each two weeks, we would dial it down a little bit. So it went from heavy endurance and then the next two weeks, heavy, heavy strength. And then something a little bit more in the middle where we were more skill-based and uh, started getting back to our strength. And then right before the Olympic qualifier, we, we turned it into power and more technical dialing of our skills. Uh, each about two weeks long, we got a really, really long uh, segment of time there before the qualifier. So in the moment, man, it sucked. It was really hard. Um, I've actually never really been part of this is pretty typical for professional teams you know when they when they start up their camps again in mid-august and guys haven't been playing for three four months probably put on a couple pounds and are a little bit out of shape it's really common for professional teams to um, run a lot of endurance and uh, do a lot of heavy lifting just to get guys back into it and then in turn obviously that makes them just more prepared for when season starts you're not actually playing that much volleyball until maybe a month before your season opener. But we essentially just did that and condensed it down into an eight-week period. And to the point where we were playing Norseca, like we went down to Charleston and we're playing in that tournament. And we weren't done our our technical cycle yet. Like we still, I think a lot of guys still felt a little bit clunky in, in some of the precision skills that you would expect us to be really good at. So um and yes like charleston was important but we were really we kept all of our eyes on the olympic qualifier i think it was pretty clear that that was the goal for the quad and that was thomas's goal as well but yeah we um we worked hard i don't think i've ever slept so much <laughs> than those first two weeks so a lot of sand training and a lot of yeah just endurance work that volleyball players aren't used to doing very often yeah, and, and it sounds like just by chatting with you that one of your strengths is just staying in the moment. But I'm wondering, where does your mind go in that moment? Because I, I find when you do get fatigued and it is training camp, like you said, and you're supposed to have a longer break, like maybe guys start complaining or you just get miserable. Like it was it was it almost team building because everybody's going through it together and like you kind of just had time to train, eat and go to bed. Like when you say you're sleeping so much, are you getting like nine, ten hours a day? I was sleeping probably nine, 10 hours a night and taking a nap in between sessions. Like an hour. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. I've never been so tired. Uh, for sure. A little bit of team building too. We did um, sometimes towards the end of the, the SAM sessions where we were out on the beach, we would do some sort of drill where you need to rely on your teammate left and right to like get something done. But uh, again, in regards to the physical training, um, staying in the moment, I think, yeah, it can be overwhelming if you're looking at like the weeks that you have of physical training for sure. All you can focus on is whatever's next. Uh, but also what was constantly reminded while we were like running a drill on time, that was very physically draining would be, you know, as soon as your legs start burning, like this is kind of, this is why we're doing this so that like, once you get that moment, okay, what are you made of? Like, are you able to keep pushing through that? 
how badly do you want to qualify for the Olympics? Like it, it was brought up quite a bit when you're squatting down in the sand, running lateral from sideline to sideline for like three minutes straight and your legs are just dying. So for sure, that was uh, maybe there was a little bit more future focused, but to bring back presence into it, I think if, if any of us would have looked at the whole week and just thought about what it was going to take, it can be overwhelming. And in that sense, yeah, you got to stay present and just focus on the next training session. And again, just chatting with you, I, I like your point earlier about um, you like to take stuff from every coach and you feel like you can learn from everybody. So with Thomas coming in, what can you describe for me and the listeners just in terms of uh, his style, how demanding he is? Because he's got such a unique background where he's a top tier coach. But if people remember correctly, he was a top tier player, right? So he's got so many layers of experience. So what kind of stood out in some first impressions or just over the summer of working with the uh, I hope I'm allowed to call him Thomas. I know it's it's spelled like two most, but uh, hopefully he lets us call us Thomas here in Canada. Yeah, yeah, he he did mention that earlier. Call him, you can call me Thomas. So, um, no stress there. Um, I would describe Thomas's style, um, in two words, being being simplicity and camaraderie. So, anything that's tricky or a little bit more outside the box or um just against against the simplest way to do or perform an action or a play or a skill he's actually not a big fan of um he likes really quote-unquote simple volleyball so that was a little bit of a change up from what i had experienced with for example, the analytics of Stefan and then uh, some of the things we were trying to do at Trinity back in my university days. But I can see the value of it because he would literally always say like, simple is better, simple is better. And uh, as we started to apply that more and more, it's true. Um, you can definitely see where he's coming from. So that's describing simple. And then camaraderie. Um, he anyone who watches him knows he's quite animated himself i think he's done a pretty good job through his professional coaching career to dial that in a little bit because obviously coaches need to be a little bit more level-headed at times than players are allowed to be or rather than players uh can control sometimes on the court like emotions can definitely you can just feel the game um and thomas does feel the game but um it's always it's always creating an energy within the group and then going after your opponents. Like he's really big on like we fight, we go, um, every action is the same. Like you compete just as hard for this point as you do the last, you never give up, you're doing this together, things like that, which sounds kind of cliche and stereotypical, but especially in volleyball where it's such a game of momentum, um, it's really, really valuable to have all of the players dialed in, have fire in their eyes and competing to win each point individually. It's, you know, like that can be the edge that wins those two or three points that we were talking about and can end up winning the match. So. And does that, does that fire, does that maybe to a point like confrontation, is that encouraged in drills too? Like when you're across the net, are you encouraged to like really be demanding if you get a block, like celebrate if you score points, like are you kind of going at like Danny and Lucas and the other cats through the net? Um, not so 
not adding, let me correct myself, you're not adding energy to the other side of the net. You're adding energy to your team. He would actually get really mad at guys if they talked to players on the other side of the net. Oh, Even if it was casually. Like if you're talking about a player or something, it's really common. I don't know, say we're playing Argentina. They love to complain about everything. <laughs> They're like talking through the net about who touched the ball last and say, I'm engaged in a conversation because I was part of the play. Thomas hates that. Like he would say, like, don't you don't need to talk to them. They do whatever they do. We bring it back to us. Like he's really about keeping the energy within the group, within the six players that are on the court. So yeah, it's it's not really yeah, you're you're fiery and you're competing, but you're not you're not going at the other team like verbally or trying to like in that sense, I guess. With that yeah. Yeah, no, that that's fascinating. That's a really good example. Thank you for that. So uh, as the Olympic qualifier comes out, like you mentioned, like, yeah, holidays get cut a little bit short. And I think you guys did a training camp before going to your actual pool. So uh, did you actually consciously notice your body feeling better? Like, did this adaptation that Michael kind of designed with Thomas, like, did you notice when, like, it was tournament time that you guys were, like, ready to go? Yeah, we had a lot of, I actually noticed it most when we were down in Charleston. Because, again, that's kind of when we were entering or halfway through more of our technical power phase before the qualifier and um that's kind of when i realized like hey like i'm recovering a lot better i feel a lot better on the court um my body's not hurting as much up until that point it was really tough but from that point on and then as we flew across to japan to start our training block there um, yeah, big difference in recovery and just how you were feeling on the court. And then I unfortunately didn't get the chance to play too much at the qualifier, but I know guys who were playing for um, a lot of the games did say like they felt really good out there. And Mar being one of those guys. So um, it was hard, but it, I guess it worked. <laughs> like kudos to him. So that was something that was unique and a little bit more old school, but I would say it paid its dividends. So. And I know you can only speak for yourself and you did mention like the, the amount of points that maybe like Mar was logging was a little bit different than yours, but in speaking to Michael and hopefully he doesn't mind me saying this on the internet that, uh, Thomas would cancel servant pass some days because by the time you, you know, fuel up, commute there, get loose, get your work in and come back, like it wasn't worth as much as maybe sleeping it in was going to be for some guys. So with volleyball players being such creatures of habits and we all like to do servant pass and you've been doing it since university, was that something that the team kind of switched on to or was there guys like, did you really want to get in the gym and get loose in the morning? Like, uh, was it such a radical change or were guys buying in because he was just so important and guys were so fatigued? Yeah. Um, that was something a little bit new for me, but I can definitely see the benefit of it. The, regardless if we had server pass or not, we would always meet as a team at some point after breakfast and do like a stretch or do like a warm up together to at least get the body moving. Because I, I do think there is a lot of practical benefit from doing something before you have to play in the evening, like for sure. So I, I don't think there was many days when we wouldn't do something as a team where Cookie would take us on a walk and then we'd do like a warm-up together, uh, maybe in one of the hotel meeting rooms, and then guys would do some rollouts and like whatever. Like guys would get their bodies moving still. Uh, but in terms of jumping and, and actually playing in the morning, yeah, Thomas wasn't a big fan of it. To add on to that, I know a lot of teams have like a designated breakfast, for example, like Maybe you don't play until 8 o'clock at night, but your breakfast is at 8.30 in the morning. Um, and you're expected to be there and be part of your 
like with your team. Thomas would always say like, how late does breakfast go? Kimo so tells me maybe it's 10 o'clock. He'd say, okay, you have to be there by like 9.50, at least to like eat, but sleep, do what you have to do in the morning because everyone's different. So that was also kind of unique. The mornings were more do what you have to do to get your head right and your body right, whether that's sleep or whether that's some journaling or whether that's some extra game film. Do what you got to do in the morning. We'll do something as a team after breakfast and then we'll go to the game together and obviously be team team together after that. But And who uh, was your roommate? Were you, were you on the same page with your routine with, uh, with your roommate in terms of going to breakfast or was like everybody honestly just doing their own thing? Uh, our roommates do vary on the road. So it changes, changes every, uh, most trips it'll change in each like training block. But a lot of us really valued being able to sleep <laughs> as long as we could. So, um, most of the time guys would, guys would get up a little bit closer to the end of the breakfast and then we would go down. Nice, yeah. nice, and and uh, I know you mentioned it there that uh, maybe you didn't play as much as uh, you know we had hoped, and I know the roster was pretty tight. But when you're in those situations, how did you find a way to still support or help the middles? Because they're obviously coming off every three rotations. Like you're seeing the game. Like did, did you take any role in, in the game prep or any uh, communication during timeouts or stoppages? Like what can you do as a player, even though you're not maybe on the court for as many matches as you would have liked? For sure. Um... Yeah, like you said, the middles are in and out. So it's a very practical position to utilize the other guys that are on the bench or have a different perspective of the game. So yeah, I would always ask, like, what do you want me to watch? Is there anything you, you need from me? And then otherwise, just being like a verbal support is, can be pretty big. Uh, like I said, volleyball is a big momentum game. <laughs> and uh, having, a, having a group of bench guys who's like warm, ready to go in you know, waiting for their shot, but also like super supportive can also be a little bit of an edge and give you a couple of extra points. Um, so yeah, it is what it is. And while I was in those situations, I knew if I had to go into the game, I would be ready. I, that wasn't, that wasn't a concern for me. Um, but we had the group we had and they were playing well and, and I, I just wanted to qualify. So whatever, whatever's best right now for the team, totally fine with me. And I knew I was ready. Um, and if I was called on, it would have been fine. So, well, man, this has been awesome. And, and just one thing I had in my notes here, not national team related, but just uh, your approach. And uh, I've appreciated how much you've just shared with the show, whether it was your episode or Tales from Overseas or everything else you've contributed to. But uh, going back to your first episode, uh, the Trinity culture was so strong where you would just share kind of mantras where there was the rock and roll story where like there, there's certain artists who can switch it on and this is their livelihood and they take it serious, but then they'll kind of smile and say, well, you know, it's just, it's just rock and roll at the end of the day and, and stuff like that, where you even shared about the Trinity culture where, you know, if they're super serious and they're silly, you guys are kind of down the middle, but would lean towards the silly side because you're playing with your best friends. So uh, I'm wondering when you left the Trinity culture and, and went and started playing pro and went to our senior A team, were you able to bring that like level of joy and, and just what you bring and what you value in volleyball or does it kind of change with who's around you? Like does, is the Trinity thing like no one can remake that because you were playing with your best friends or, or when you go to Benfica or Volleyball Canada, are you able to like play with a smile in your face and still bring joy and, and all the things that you love about volleyball? For sure, especially during a game when tensions are high having a good emotional IQ and being able to relate properly with your teammates and kind of knowing how to interact with them in different situations 
is very beneficial. You definitely need to be a little bit adaptable depending on what's going on and depending on the type of energy your teammates are giving you. Um, I've talked a lot about, or I've mentioned the word presence a lot on this, on this call and kind of how I'm starting to define presence is the truest and most purest version of yourself fully immersed in what you're doing right now. And I think naturally, I think naturally if your two personas on court and off court are going to differ a lot, there's a lot higher risk that there's going to be some tension and that it's not as easy to find the flow state during a game. So I think naturally I am a little bit more joyful on the court. I try to be very extroverted, communicating uh, pretty much constantly with my teammates and just being intense and fun to play with. I think you can balance intensity and fun. And uh, yeah, I think I'm my best when I can have that pure version of myself fully immersed in what I'm doing. So that aspect of the silliness from Trinity, um, that's kind of where I've matured in this game. And that's definitely still a big aspect of my game. And I think the best version of myself is when there's definitely a section of that and a section of camaraderie and a section of, yeah, supporting your teammates and trying to be their best friend while they're on the court. So, um, yeah, has to be adaptable, but the best version of myself is when some of those qualities are shining through for sure. And I know what those are and it's about <laughs> trying to put those into uh, practice as much as I can during practice and then hoping that they can show and it really matters on the court. And is this something, obviously you bring attention to it, but how formal are you bringing attention to it? Like, are you journaling uh, when you talk about like being genuine and being aware of your teammates? Like, is this something that you're just hyper aware of in training or when you go for breakfast or when you're on the bus, like just being aware of certain moods and how guys want to be talked to? Like, how have you made this a, a skill where it's something that you, you value so much that you can, you know, do it in tough moments? I kind of mentioned at the beginning when we talked about having a bunch of free time that I enjoy, um, I enjoy learning new things and developing healthy habits, not only for the physical side of my game, but also um, mental and like the social part of my game. Like my job is to play good volleyball, stay healthy. And to be honest, like I would, the third component would be relating with others. Well, I think that's a really important part of being part of a team sport that's so dependent on each other, like volleyball. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of different like books. I'll read podcasts. I'll listen to, uh, yeah, blog posts, articles, things like that, that will just help me be a better teammate, be a better coworker. Really. This is a job at the end of the day and really better with my teammates. Um, yeah journaling as well big part of it so i would say it's just the third aspect of the game that's not talked about or trained as much but can have a lot of benefit and i think the best players are really good at relating good to their teammates well man this has been great it's so easy to be a big fan of yours so best of luck with the second half of your pro season and looking forward to another big season with the national team so thanks again for coming on the show and sharing all that you did yeah thanks for having me on it's been fun